The Laura Murphy Report, episode 86. Welcome to The Laura Murphy Show, the podcast that analyzes financial markets from the perspective of Austrian economics and Nelson Nash's infinite banking concept. Listen and learn as your hosts, Robert Murphy and Carlos Lara, explain how you can be part of building the 10%. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Lara Murphy Report, previously known as the Lara Murphy Show. I am joined, as usual, by Carlos Lara. Carlos, how are things in Nashville? They're good. Better than I deserve, Bob. They're good. Okay, great. So what we're talking about today, folks, is uh, I had come across this interesting article. It was in The Hill. I think it was original there. I don't think it was reprinted from somewhere by uh, Paul, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, Kupek and Alex Pollack. So I'm not familiar with Kupek. It says here that he's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. But Alex Pollack, I am familiar with. He's a senior fellow at the Mises Institute. And he... um, is very familiar with how the Fed's balance sheet works. So for those of you who listen to Jeff Deist and me on the Human Action Podcast, we've gone through some of Pollock's analysis before on that channel. So what we're talking about today, though, is this very interesting article that ran on July 23rd of 2022 in The Hill called Who Owns the Fed's Massive Losses? So let me just uh, read the first paragraph here. And then we'll, we'll dive right into it. So here's what they say. We estimate that at the end of May, the Federal Reserve had an unrecognized mark-to-market loss of about $540 billion on its $8.8 trillion portfolio of treasury bonds and mortgage securities. This loss, which will only get larger as interest rates increase, is more than 13 times the Federal Reserve System's consolidated capital of $41 billion. All right, so let's pause there and let me just give the audience a quick primer on bond prices and, and yields and, and how that works. I'm sure many of them have heard this before, but just to make sure they have it down straight before we dive into these technicalities. Let me just walk through a simple numerical example just to remind everybody how this stuff works. So let's say you start out with $1,000 in actual cash, and then you went out in the market and you bought a bond that it was an infinite horizon bond, right? It was, it was, it was, in the British Empire, was it called a console? And its interest rate at the time you bought it, long-term interest rates were 10%. And so every year, you know, the person that you lent the money to and who issued you this bond is giving you $100, all right, 10% rate of return on that $1,000 investment. Okay. Now, what happens if interest rates double to 20%? Okay, so you, contractually, you still had that bond and it's still giving you a flow of $100 per year in what was interest income on that original thousand that you put down. But now that interest rates are 20%, the market value of that cash flow stream to which you're entitled contractually, the present market value actually gets cut in half, right? It's only worth $500. And the reason for that, if you know that seems odd to you, the reason is that right now, now that interest rates have risen to 20%, how much cash would you need on the spot to be able to go out in the market and buy a flow of $100 per year stream of income is you would only need $500, right? Because interest rates are 20%. So if you just do the math, if you had $500, then 
20% of that is $100. And so if the interest rate is 20% per year, then that's $500 right now would entitle you to a flow of $100 per year in interest income because of arbitrage. And so that's why if you have that originally issued bond back when interest rates were 10% and you, you bought it with your $1,000, again, it's, it's not that you have something that is $1,000 and that's what the contract is. No, the contract just said what this thing entitles you to is a flow of $100 per year. And since when you bought it, you had to hand over $1,000. That's why we say implicitly the yield on that thing was 10% annually. And that's what the market rate of interest was at the time, of course. That's why the, the person borrowing the money from you agreed to it. But technically, legally, what that bond entitles you to is the flow of $100 per year. And so that's why when interest rates jump to 20%, the market value of that cash flow stream gets cut in half to $500. Okay? And then doing it the other way, let's say instead of interest rates going from 10% to 20%, they got cut in half. So interest rates dropped to 5%. Well, now, again, that same flow of $100 per year coming from the person that sold you the bond originally, the market value of that now is capitalized at a spot value, a present value of $2,000. Again, right now, how much would somebody need to come up with on the spot in order to go out in the market and buy a cash flow of $100 per year. Well, if by assumption interest rates are now at 5%, you would need $2,000 right now in order to go buy a cash flow stream like that. And so that's why the market value of your original cash flow stream gets doubles to 2,000. Okay. And so that's the mechanics of how changes in interest rates affect the current market valuation of a bond. And so then, you know, you just say, okay, well then how do we think about that stuff? So they are capital gains and losses, but we can distinguish between realized capital gains and losses. And so here again, just think about a stock for a second. I think it's easier for people to realize that if you went out and spent a thousand dollars on some shares of stock, let's say 10 shares of Twitter stock. And so now you, and so you have that, what you actually own are the shares and you put a thousand dollars into it. So right now you would say the market value of your stock holdings is a thousand dollars. And then if the Twitter stock doubles to $20 per share, the market value of your holdings goes up to $2,000. So we would say you had a capital gain of $1,000 on your asset, but it's not that you have a thousand extra dollars in your bank account, right? It's just the, the property you own, the asset, the current market valuation has risen. So we would say, as long as you hang on to that stock, it's an unrealized gain. And likewise, if of course, if the stock price fell in half, then your original $1,000 asset of those shares of Twitter stock would fall to $500 and you would have an unrealized capital loss. But again, if you didn't sell, then there's a sense in which your actual cash isn't affected. It's just you know the value of your asset. And so in terms of the accounting, we can say you had capital gains and losses, but we use that word unrealized to show you, know, you didn't lock it in in a sense. It's just you know, fluctuations based on market price. So that's a lot of times what people are going to talk about when you're holding a bond is to say, oh yeah, because of changing interest rates, the market valuation of that bond swings up or down, you know, going the opposite direction as the change in interest rates. But as long as you just hang on to the bond and just keep collecting those cash flows, there's a sense in which, well, maybe you're not as affected. Just like if you had a house and all of a sudden, you know, the, the market price of real estate in your region collapsed, you could say, oh my gosh, last Thursday, I lost $100,000 on my house but it's not that you necessarily would be poorer in terms of your standard of living so long as you want to just keep living in the house. You know, and you kept making your mortgage payments if you, if you still owed money on it. 
you would still be fine. It's not as if someone took $100,000 out of your bank account. Okay, so that's this the, the basics to bring people up to speed. So again, let me go reread that first paragraph and then I, I will stop and give <laughs> Carlos a chance to chime in on this podcast that he co-hosts. So again, what our two authors were saying here is that we estimate that at the end of May, and again, this is 2022, the Federal Reserve had an unrecognized mark-to-market loss of about $540 billion on its $8.8 trillion portfolio of treasury bonds and mortgage securities. This loss, which will only get larger as interest rates increase, is more than 13 times the Federal Reserve System's consolidated capital of $41 billion. So again, the Fed, during all the rounds of QE, after the financial crisis, and then what, what they did even more so after the 2020 pandemic, the Fed went out, bought a bunch of bonds, namely treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities, swelling its balance sheet, and interest rates were very low at the time. And now that interest rates are rising from the same process you know, that I discussed five minutes ago, the market value of those bonds is lower than what it was when the Fed first bought them. And it's because interest rates were lower then. And so if you just say, like, what's the market valuation of those assets... The Fed, in a sense, lost $540 billion, at least on paper. And now it's still hanging on to the bonds, so it didn't realize the loss. And then you say, well, is that a big deal? And if you look at the Fed's balance sheet in terms of assets versus liabilities and shareholder equity, the shareholder equity was only about $41 billion. So the point is, if this loss were to be realized, the Fed is insolvent. It's, it's bankrupt. Okay, so I'll stop there. And Carlos, I'll finally give you a chance to, to talk. Okay. Folks, as as you can gather already, this could turn into a very technical <laughs> a podcast because it's got numbers, big numbers in there. And Bob's already explained what bonds, how bonds are, it's an important piece of what's going on right now. And uh, I would just like to say to you that this is a subject which is really of epic proportions. It's big. We need to pay attention to how big it really is, but it's huge. So what I'm saying is that, in effect, you know, the Federal Reserve is broke. I can't say it any clearer than that. It's broke. It's a situation that they, the Fed, has never experienced since its 103-year history since the Fed was put together. I mean, where they are now, it's a huge thing. Now, this uh, unbelievable financial situation is a consequence of the balance sheet that the Fed has created. In short, the Fed's income dynamics resemble very much like those of the 1980s savings and loan disaster for those of you that can still remember that period. I know that I was very young when it happened, but I still remember that period. And Bob was probably a, a baby at that point, but that was quite an event that took place with these savings and loans. Now, these, are, these were um, basically very small banks that you know, lent money to people to buy houses and cars and things like that. And there was a lot of them throughout the country, lots of them. They got into trouble, big trouble. 
all of them started going bankrupt. And, you know, as it was done back then, the Fed will attempt to, you know, hide the mess from the people, from the public. They'll try to hide it by creating uh, sort of like fancy accounting innovations, if I can use the, the word correctly. They're going to do fancy accounting because they did it back then with the SNLs. And because of the situation the Fed is in right now, they're going to turn around and do the same thing again. Now, remember, we don't need to forget this ever, that the Fed can literally print as much money as is needed. And it plans to do the same thing again. If you don't know this, but maybe you do, that there are 12 member banks, and those 12 member banks are supposed to bear the brunt of any losses that are incurred by the Fed. And so if they begin to monetize the debt again, it will be like uh, breaking the law. According to the Federal Reserve's Act when it was first established. But I have to ask you, I think I really have to just throw this out there. You know, if they were to do that, which I, they're getting ready to do it again, who's going to know? I mean, who, who actually is going to know? Unless you're looking at the Fed and how it operates and what they're doing and what they've done in the past, you know, most people can't follow it. And so they can do these things and hide the evidence pretty easily. So I keep asking, them, well, if they do all this again, like they did once before, who's going to know? And I guess, Bob, we're soon going to find out, aren't we? Yeah, that's definitely right. Let me read a little bit more from this article to sort of buttress what you're saying there, Carlos, and also to anticipate, you know, some of the listeners might think like, oh, okay, well, this is sort of an on-paper thing that changing market conditions means that, oh, there's this big apparent capital loss, but it's unrealized. And, you know, as long as money coming in the door is always sufficient to pay money that's going out the door, you know, who cares? But that's actually, it's, that's not the extent of the problem. It's not merely this sort of awkward oh, gee, there's this, you know, technically we're insolvent, but, you know, who cares in terms of the operations? So uh, let me see here. I'm reading some select paragraphs further down in this article. Among Federal Reserve officials and many economists, it is fashionable to argue that any losses the Federal Reserve should suffer, no matter how large, will have no operational consequence. Now that the Fed has already experienced mark-to-market losses of epic proportions and will soon face large operating losses, something it has never seen in its 108-year history. We're about to see if this is true. So folks, don't misunderstand. When Carlos was saying this is like the SNL crisis, he meant those savings and loans had balance sheets that were like the Fed's now. It's not that the Fed was insolvent back then. So this is the first time that the Fed itself is technically, you know, according to standard accounting procedures, insolvent. Let's see, here we go. By the Federal Open Market Committee's own estimates, short-term policy rates will approach 3.5% by year-end 2022, Many think policy rates will go higher, maybe much higher, before the Fed successfully contains surging inflation. So this is the key point. Our estimates suggest that the Federal Reserve will begin reporting net operating losses once short-term interest rates reach 2.7%. This estimate assumes the Fed has no realized losses from selling securities 
If short-term rates reach 4%, we estimate an annualized operating loss of $62 billion or a loss of 150% of the Fed's total capital. One more paragraph, folks. This unenviable financial situation, huge mark-to-market investment losses and looming negative operating income is the predictable consequence of the balance sheet the Fed has created. The Fed is paying rising rates of interest on bank reserves and reverse repurchase transactions while its balance sheet is stuffed with low-yielding, long-term fixed-rate securities. In short, the Fed's income dynamics resemble those of a typical 1980s savings and loan. So this, you know, so it's agreeing with what Carlos was saying there a minute ago. So what's happening is the Fed actually has expenses besides just you know paying for the electricity and its buildings and things. And so what it's been doing since October of 2008 is paying interest on reserves. And as interest rates rise, they have to, you know, they've been raising that rate. And so that's, you know, a short-term expense. And also they're uh, in the reverse repos, you know, there's money going out the door, in other words. And so what these guys are saying is, it, this is not merely something, some interesting quirk of the accounting that, in terms of how much income does the Fed take in in a given year as interest on its bond portfolio, its asset side, compared to how much are its costs of operation. And again, I don't just mean like paying Federal Reserve economists. I'm talking how much does it owe other financial parties because of their contractual relationship with the Fed. And those numbers are going to mismatch, these authors suggest, once short-term interest rates reach a mere 2.7%, you know, so it's not that interest rates have to skyrocket like in 1980. They just got to go back up short-term rates to 2.7%. And these guys' estimates are saying at that point, the huge volume of interest they're getting from the, you know, the, the trillions that they hold in, in bonds, because the interest rate on that is so low, because that's what the rate was when they locked it in, is going to be that the flow from that is going to be lower than the outgoing expense flow because their liabilities, even though they were originally smaller than the assets, the fact that they, they're short-term and as they roll them over, you know, the, the interest rate rises on them, that's the situation. So their assets, the maturity of their assets does not match the maturity of their liabilities. That's one way of putting it. And so they're, they're caught now in this pickle where their liabilities are much shorter duration than that of their assets. And so that's why they're going to get, they're in trouble. So again, this is not merely some accounting fluke that doesn't have any practical impact. It's that pretty soon, again, these authors are suggesting it's going to happen this calendar year, the Fed is literally going to be losing money, that its expenses from operation are going to be higher than its income. And what they mention is, well, how are they going to deal with it? Well, back in 2011, they made this move. And at the time I covered this, I think we talked about it too in our uh, printed report, Carlos, the, the Laura Murphy physical report back then. I know Zero Hedge eventually picked up on it, but they made this sort of obscure announcement that wasn't a big deal at the time, but a few people were like, wait a minute, that's kind of weird. Traditionally, what happens is when the Fed runs a surplus, it has an item on its liability side that says remittances to the treasury, right? So contractually, the Fed's allowed to earn a profit and then it gives dividend payments to the member banks who technically are the shareholders in the Fed. In case people don't know that, remember (laughs) that private banks literally own the Federal Reserve. So, which, you know, some people are shocked when they first hear that. And so the Fed pays them dividends on their stock shares, on their ownership. So in a normal year, the Fed earns a profit. 
And out of that, it gives the dividends to the member banks. And then if there's surplus left over, it remits that to the treasury. And so Uncle Sam partly benefits from the existence of the Fed in a typical year. And so in terms of the accounting, that shows up as a liability, you know, a positive liability, meaning it ends up subtracting from shareholder equity on the Fed's balance sheet. So what they announced back in 2011 is, here's what we're going to do. If it ever turns out that we have an operating loss, the way we're going to handle that on the balance sheet, we're not going to show that it reduces shareholder equity. Instead, what we're going to do you know, so in other words, it's still going to be that assets equal liabilities plus shareholder equity. But what we're going to do is if there's an operating loss for the liability side, and like, so let's say in a given year, the Fed loses $13 billion. Instead of that coming out of equity, instead what the Fed's going to do is say, we owe the treasury this year in remittances negative $13 billion. And so that's the way they're going to make the numbers work so that the, you know, the balance sheet still balances. And so they're going to have a negative liability. And then in future years, like if the next year they had a $3 billion surplus, then the negative $13 billion that they owed the treasury would go to negative $10 billion. And that's how it would work. Okay, so that's what they're planning on doing. And so there's a sense in which they can say, hey, we're still solvent. You know, our, our, we still have positive shareholder equity, but it's only by introducing this odd move of being able to say what they owe the treasury is a negative number which, you know, other institutions aren't allowed to do that. That, You know, if if some company were were insolvent or bankrupt and just said, oh, we owe our shareholders, you know, our our shareholders right now have a negative position, so we're still solvent. It's just that their equity in the company is now negative. You couldn't do that. People would just say, well, no, that's what it means to be bankrupt. This is that there's no no net ownership anymore in this company. It's, it's It's worth negative amount. So that's what's going on. And that's what, you know, these guys are talking about what the Fed may do and it sort of dovetailed, Carlos, with what you were saying about you know fancy accounting techniques. I don't know if that's explicitly what they did with the SNLs back in the day, but but yeah, this is stuff that a normal financial entity institution would not be able to do. What it means when your liabilities have a higher market value than your assets—that's what it means to be bankrupt. Yeah, the point that I was trying to make is that you know the Fed has been around for a long time, and uh, it's always made money. That's the thing about it. It's always made money. But this time around, we're going to find out pretty soon (laughs) because they're going to fix it so it doesn't look like they're really losing money. But let me tell you, they are losing money and they're broke. So it's a bad situation. That's the main thing I was just trying to get across. And that's what made me uh, also think about the SNLs and their situation. And I think... With what they're going to do, Bob, because I have no way of describing other this. It's like it's illegal. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's just that they they can actually do this kind of stuff. It's just I'm just playing with numbers the way they are. But you know, the situation is so bad right now. You know, people actually feel the effects of this. That's the other thing to realize. People will feel the effects of what they're going to do. And that's the sort of thing that uh, I believe we're all going to see. You know, we've been talking a lot about it, the way inflation is right now, that is rampant, you know, and because it's going to get worse. Everything's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And this little thing that Bob just described here just explains it. The Fed knows it's in trouble. But again, they're going to try to keep it hidden. <laughs> 
I also would like to tell people, because it happened during the SNL crisis, is that get ready for fraud to escalate. When these kind of maneuvers occur like that, you know, fraud always comes into the picture in one form or another. I don't know if you folks remember uh, the name Charles Keaton. Do you remember him, Bob? Charles Keaton? It was Keating, right? Yeah. You know, he's he's the guy that uh, he purchased an enormous amount. I think it was like 50-something million dollars that were financed through that other guy named Milliken. Remember Michael Milliken? <laughs> he's the guy that had the junk bond operation. And uh, Keaton got set up with Milliken. You know, he was trying to fix his bank, his own bank that was basically bankrupt. And at the time he was getting involved with Milliken and trying to do this, this junk bond stuff, Keaton's bank had a, a negative net worth of somewhere near, like I remember, $100 million. That's how broke it was. And he, he was just one of the SNLs. There were tons of them, many of which, you know, the, the Fed, the government, they had to get in and, and get rid of all those, you know, operations, close them down. And that's, that was a time when they were doing that. So all these, and of course, you have to remember that the public, really got hurt by all this. I mean, it's just this real pain that's felt by people when these kind of shenanigans start to take place. And so they're getting ready to do it again. You know, you just heard Bob say what they're, how they're going to fix it, so to speak, how they're going to hide it, fancy accounting work and whatever. But the, the, the bottom line is that, you know, individuals, people actually get hurt when this kind of stuff happens. So there's a real cost to this and it falls back to the, the people. And so, um, again, I'm saying this is a major crisis, you know, in a sense. So. I was looking him up, yes, to see the Keating's uh, Wikipedia entry. And yeah, he it did mention down the line that he was involved with Milken and his uh, junk bond deals to try to rescue the bank. I'm trying to come up with Ways of, of you know showing the average person like why does this matter? So here's one obvious thing, is that in a normal circumstance when the Fed is running an operating surplus, what happens is it remits that money to the Treasury, and so for a given level of government spending, you know by the federal government, taxes are lower than they you know can be lower or there's less borrowing necessary. All right, so so maybe that's one way of putting it is that when the Federal Reserve goes from an operating surplus to an operating loss, why does anybody care? Well, again, one reason is, well, because now that's less money that's flowing into the federal government's coffers. And so if they don't cut their spending, that means they got to now borrow that much extra to make up the gap. And so the public debt's now higher than it otherwise would have been. So that's one way of seeing, you know, that. so there is a sense in which, you know, the public is effectively on the hook for this, for these losses, if you, you know, think of it that way. I do want to mention too this issue. Sometimes people throw the word bankrupt around. There's a difference between being insolvent versus being illiquid. So if if right now you know, you have a bunch of expenses, you get you know you got to pay your rent and so on, but you you just signed a deal with some new employer and you're going to have a huge income starting in two months. 
but right now you don't have money coming in the door and gee, you know, your rent's due, your electric bill's due, you got to pay for food, then you are illiquid, but you're not insolvent. You're not bankrupt, right? If you, so if you took the market value of your assets, including those future wage payments or salary that you're going to get from that new job that you just lined up, but it doesn't start for two months, the present market value of that would be higher than the present market value of all your liabilities. You know, I got my rent every month that's due and so on. You discount everything with the relevant rate of interest. And so your assets are more than your liabilities. And so you could go borrow money, right? If you could convince some outside lender, look at, I'm solvent. It's just, I'm illiquid. Can you give me a loan for a couple, you know, can you loan me money this month and next month until I have the income coming in from, you know, that new job? And then you're fine. In contrast, if the market value of your assets is lower than the market value of your liabilities, then someone would not want, unless the act of them doing it changed the situation and flipped it, someone would not want to just lend you money because you you don't have enough to pay them back, right? That you already owe creditors more than what other people owe you or that you're going to earn based on your existing assets. And so, you know, you're, you're already a, a ship that's underwater. And so why would they want to try to, you know, lend, lend you more money? So, th- so that's kind of the distinction. And so keep in mind, again, with the Fed to say, when we say that the Fed is insolvent, what that means is, yeah, the market value of its assets is less than the market value of its liabilities. But implicit in that is the idea that at some point, there is going to be that mismatch in the operating income, right? It's not that you would just remain insolvent forever, but it would never come back to bite you. Like it's sort of built in there that there's a sense in which at some point, you know, the, the money you have going out the door that you owe people is higher than what you're going to have coming in the door. And you can't just use financing to change the the timing of those cash flows to fix it if you're insolvent. That's kind of the issue. So that's the situation the Fed is in. Let me also just mention, and we'll, I'll link to this, folks. So again, you want to go to infinitebanking.org slash 86 to see the link to the Pollock piece and the, that we're quoting from and, and also these related ones I'm going to bring up. I had seen Carlos, um, this guy Arnold Kling made a similar analysis, worried about, you know, is the Fed going to end up bankrupt? And then I saw... David R. Henderson linked to that and thought it was interesting, but he asked his buddy, Jeffrey Rogers Hummel, who many of the listeners may know, um, he's written a lot on the Civil War and free market economist. And Hummel was saying, oh, I think these fears are overblown. Let me just mention two of the things he said and then give my response. Hummel said, oh yeah, like, don't get me wrong. I think we're in for some rocky road ahead, but I don't think it's that, you know, the Fed's going to be insolvent or anything. I think it's just, you know, interest rates are going to rise and that's going to be painful. And, and so the two things he said as to why he wasn't so concerned about the Fed's position in terms of bankruptcy is he said, look, for one thing, a lot when we say that its liabilities are short term, so that's why when interest rates change, that affects, you know, changes the market value of the liabilities less than it has a drop in the assets. And that's why it can cut into equity. He said, keep in mind, a lot of the Fed's ostensible liabilities are the currency in circulation. All right, so this kind of goes back to the gold standard days in terms of the accounting that back in the day, a Federal Reserve note was a claim saying, you know, the, the owner of this thing can go get gold. And so that's why it was really a liability in a genuine legal sense that it was a claim ticket. And so that's why the Fed had to be careful about how many of those notes were in existence. We think, But nowadays, if somebody's walking around with a $100 bill, yeah, that's an immediately payable note but they really can't get anything for it. So it's not like the Fed's really on the hook and the Fed is not paying interest on those very short-term liabilities. 
And so he's saying, so that's one way to show that it's not as big a deal as you might originally have thought. And then the other thing he said is that the Fed, another of its short-term liabilities is the interest on reserves that it pays to member banks for keeping their deposits parked at the Fed, keeping their reserves there. And so, you know, if, if things got into trouble or the Fed doesn't need to raise that rate, that's a policy rate. It's not that the market determines that rate. That's just what the Fed announces what it's paying. So Hummel was arguing if, you know, the Fed doesn't need to raise that rate if it's going to cause it to become bankrupt. So why would they do that? Okay, so my two responses that on the, the latter one is pretty easy. That the if you see price inflation starting to really rise rapidly and the member banks are lending out reserves, it's true because this is the point Hummel is making that, oh, those reserves, they don't ever never leave the system. They always, the reserves are always there. So who cares? But in terms of what's called the money multiplier, it still is the case that if the if the member banks, if interest rates in the market are much higher than what the Fed is paying as reserves, interest on reserves, then the individual bank doesn't want to hang on to reserves. It wants to lend those out for the higher interest rate. So it's still true that there's more money creation if the Fed doesn't let interest on reserves rise with you know the tide of market interest rates. Okay, so that that so so yeah, what Hummel's saying is technically true, but it's sort of misleading that the Fed to achieve its objective of containing price inflation would need to raise interest on reserves or you know think it's it's going there's going to be too much lending by banks and money creation so that's one thing the other element is yeah the currency liability is true that that doesn't correspond to a direct amount that the fed has to pay in expense but again a similar thing if price inflation rises too rapidly and the fed needs to get it under control they need to suck money out of the system and so it still is the case that they're in trouble if what happened just to make up some numbers the fed bought a trillion dollars worth of assets and thus created a trillion dollars in base money. And now the banks start lending that out and prices start rising too much. If now interest rates rise and those assets the Fed bought are only worth 800 billion, now if, suppose they want to reverse that. They say, oh, let's suck the money out of the system. So how would they do it? They sell off their assets and thus suck the reserves back out of the system. But now if, what they, if those assets are only worth 800 billion, they can't suck the trillion out that they created. All right, so it's it still does matter that you know the existence of those very short term liabilities in the form of actual currency in the public's hands, even though yeah that doesn't there's a sense in which that's not a liability the same way it used to be under the gold standard. Still, there's a problem if the mechanism by which the Fed created those things is now screwed up because interest rates have risen too much. So again, the Fed is is going to be less able to contain price inflation using the standard tools because of the situation where rising interest rates have rendered the Fed technically insolvent. So like, like Carlos has been saying, they're going to do it. It's not that the Fed's going to just throw up their hands and say, oh, you know, we gave it a good run. Sorry, folks. And the Fed, they're going to keep operating. But these issues do have real world significance and people are going to ultimately see it in the form of higher federal debt deficits and price inflation higher than the, even the Fed would like because the Fed's just not, you know, they, they lack the tools now to contain it. Bob, that's good. It sums it up really well. And uh, I hope the listeners were able to catch the drift of all of that. As I said, some of it's very complicated, but it really is an epic event that's going on right now. We're, we're going to find out because they're, they're actually going to do this. Yeah, yeah, we're going to see. Uh, let me just conclude on a, a more positive note, people say, okay, yeah, guys, you scared the heck out of us. What do we do? Again, I would point you to 
the video Carlson and I did, How to Weather the Coming Financial Storms. So go to infinitebanking.org slash 86 to see these links. One last thing I'll say is some people often, and I've made this point before, but it's worth repeating. People say, well, gee, isn't the life insurance company, aren't they just buying a bunch of bonds too? And so aren't they in trouble? Well, not if they have correctly matched their liabilities to their assets, right? Because remember, the liability from the life insurer's point of view are the you know the death benefits they got to pay out. And so somebody who's going to die, let's say it's actuarially expected that someone's going to die in 20 years from now. I'm simplifying for the point of uh, convenience here, folks. It's obviously more complicated than that. But if there's a $1 million that they're going to have to pay in 20 years because someone's going to die and they have not, you know, they're insured and the policy is going to remain in force, when interest rates rise, the present value of that liability also falls. So, so long as the insurance company has been properly tailoring its asset purchases in terms of the maturities to roughly correspond to its projected time distribution of death benefit payouts and things like, you know, surrenders and whatever, when they have to give cash to the to the people contractually, so long as they've done a good job of tailoring and matching their assets to their liabilities in terms of the maturity match, then interest rates shouldn't really have that big of an impact. Yes, a skyrocketing interest rate reduces the assets of the bonds that the insurance company holds, but it also reduces the current market value of the liabilities. And so it, it would not eat into the equity, the shareholder capital of the insurance company if they did a good job matching it. So I just want to make that point that it's, remember, the insurance company is not just a bond portfolio or a bond fund, as a lot of people sometimes think. Anything else you want to say, Carlos, on this sort of dire topic? <laughs> no, uh, but it is a, it's a great topic because it's happening now. And uh, I keep saying we're, we're going to see the effects of it here pretty soon. Yes, indeed we are. All right, well, folks, thanks for your attention. Again, go to infinitebanking.org slash 86 for the links to everything we've talked about, including our video, How to Weather the Coming Financial Storms. We will see you next time. You've just finished another episode of The Laura Murphy Show. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to do your part in building the 10%. The Laura Murphy Show is provided with the understanding that the staff and contributors of lauramurphy.com are not here and engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult your own professional tax, legal, or financial advisor. Thank you.